G'day everyone, Craig from People With A Passion. Today's guest is Dr. Joe Lukens, who's actually an associate professor at James Cook University, who's just authored a book called The Elite, Think Like an Athlete, Succeed Like a Champion. And we're going to be speaking about sports psychology and how you can get the best out of yourself and improve your performance as you drive towards success. How are you, Dr. Joe Lukens? I'm good, thank you, Craig. Good to be here with you. I want to talk a little bit about you as a person before we go into the book. So tell us a little bit of your history and how you've arrived to write the book. Okay, so my background is actually in psychology. So I worked as a psychologist for about 28 years. And even, even that story is, is a little bit different because I, um, I think it reflects what often happens for us in life. I, I went through school and my original career aspirations was to be a police officer um, is what I wanted to be. And when I went down to the academy, they said, well, you really should come in with a degree is a good way, is a good route to come in. And so I decided to study psychology. I went to the school guidance officer. I grew up on the Sunshine Coast. And after a misread of the QTAC book, um, he sent me to sunny Townsville rather than down to Brisbane, which is where I could have gone. And, yeah. um, and I actually think then the reason that I mention it is that is the reason that I ended up working in elite sport, um, which is interesting because you wouldn't necessarily put a regional centre as the reason for that. But what it meant for me was that I had opportunities that came along that I wouldn't have had in other centres so that when the Cowboys started here in 19, not well, they started here in 1995, they didn't have a psychologist the first year, but in 1996, Graham Lowe decided he wanted one as part of the team. So I seized the opportunity and I've, I've been with the club ever since and worked with the fire and I don't think I would have got those opportunities in other places. So that's, yeah. that's sort of how, how the path through psychology came along, teaching at the university and then a couple of years ago, I was invited to give a keynote at a conference and um, they asked me to sort of do something that was a little less sort of structured and traditionally academic. So I decided to talk about what have I learned from working with elite athletes in, and it was a great reflection piece for me to be able to do professionally. And at the time I thought, yeah, I think other people would find this quite interesting. And then a couple of years go by and... Um, you know, the opportunity came along last year for me. I, I, um, I worked out that the best way for me to write a book was that I needed a coach. So I went and got myself a book coach and um, they put me on the pathway and the book came out this year. Yeah, so, so that was a year-long journey for you? Yeah, pretty yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It was, well, it was actually this time last year I signed up with the coach. Um, I, I had had the idea for a number of years, but I think it's probably one of those lessons that for any of us setting ourselves a goal, you... You kind of need a deadline, you need some accountability and um, and that process offered that for me. So that's what allowed me to kind of prioritise it, put it to the top of the top of the list and, and got it done. In your book, you refer to uh, as a as a trade, I guess, psychology. There's what you refer to as negative psychology and then positive psychology. What does that actually mean? And, and do you want to describe why you branched off into the positive psychology so traditionally what psychology has always done is tried to understand the human condition so it's tried to get a handle on you know the experiences that people might have in life particularly the adversities so if someone's going through depression or anxiety or any one of those conditions that's so commonly experienced by so many people and tried to understand it look at what what are interventions how can we help people and that's been really important and that work continues to be important um, and then I guess what happened was there was a professor by the name of uh, Donald Clift and he asked the profession what would happen if we studied what's right with people. 
and psychology kind of had an aha moment at that point where we realised that we didn't really have an organised understanding about the positive side of life, you know. So particularly in the world of sport, you know, when we're looking at success and achievement and personal best and effort and and then when we go further afield and we look at things like kindness and happiness and gratitude and all Mm. these kinds of things, um, we really didn't have a science that was well-based around that. So that's what uh, the field of positive psychology then started to explore. And I guess that all came about when I was graduating from uni. So perfect timing for me, particularly wanting to work in the sports setting. My honours research was in sports psychology. My PhD was in sports psychology. So it was a natural place to sort of house myself. And that's where I've spent my career working within that discipline um, and helping people to set their goals, achieve their goals and deal with the, the um, setbacks along the way. Yeah, sure. So one of the references you also make in the book is to um, the concept of the mental game and that athletes are honing their skills um, more or not more or less physically. Uh, do you want to refer to why, as a tool, psychology is important to athletes and individuals to improve their performance, where it can help, uh, and, and also why this concept of a mental muscle that we actually that the brain and our habits and things can be formed over time to improve our performance? Yeah, absolutely. I think most people could probably think of times in their lives where the things that you engage in are influenced by the way that you think. You know, that's essentially what we're looking at there, that the way, you know, one of the, the catchphrases from positive psychology is that the way that you think matters. And I know that seems like it's stating the obvious. And what I find when I'm talking to people, whether it be in corporate settings or sports settings, is people not in agreement and then go, yes, but I don't know how to do that, you know. So there's some challenges around that. So if you look at it from a sports perspective and, and you know, we've just been through the grand finals recently for, for many of the codes, um, most of those athletes would, would say that as they line up for those games, which is just another game, it's another 80 minutes, it's, the rules haven't changed, nothing's changed, but the outcome's changed. And so, therefore, the experience of going through something like a grand final um, can as much be, I think, at that point in time in the season, as much a psychological competition as it is, obviously, a a physical and a tactical one. So it's the athletes who can refine their physical skills, who who know the tactics and and so forth of, of their craft, but it's also those athletes that can get on top of the mental game that I think will probably then maximise their potential for success. You've done work with two professional teams that um, are in your part of the world and obviously a number of athletes um, within those teams and, and external those teams. How important is the concept of mental resilience and the ability to actually block out the negative to focus on an outcome? Mm, crucially important is is what I would I would suggest is the case because, you know, whenever we encounter any situation, there's a range of ways we can think about it and conceptualize it so you know and and you mentioned before habits and I'm so glad that you did because what we tend to do is we think in in habits we've we've been doing it for a long period of time and we tend to go into a default position and maybe not necessarily pay as much attention to the decisions that we make so say for example if something goes wrong in our sport you know whatever it is we drop the ball or we, we 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 miss something or whatever it is that we do it's not so much what happens to us, it's really about how we think about it that becomes important once it's done because as as you've referred to, once it's done, it's done, you can't do too much about it but it's what you do next that you can do something about it. So if you spend 
the next few moments, reliving the mistake, thinking about it over and over again, replaying it over and over again in your heads. You know, when I, when I talk to my students about the importance of mental imagery, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if we see ourselves making a mistake that we then go out and we make it, you know. Mm -hmm. So so at that point in time where, say, we've dropped the ball, if that's literally, literally we've, we've dropped the ball, whatever the sport might be, the best visual for us is to think about ourselves catching it. You know, and I, yeah. and I know, you know, it's and, and it's interesting when you hear coaches and when you talk at athletes, you know, talking about um, what it is that they need to do. One of the unhelpful things that you can say in sport in that example is don't drop it because what happens is you see yourself dropping it. And it's almost like the brain puts a big line through the don't bit and just hears drop it. Um, and so what you've actually got to do is save the athletes some mental energy and say, catch the ball you know so you actually I worked with a boxer many many years ago and I don't profess to know a lot about boxing but the situation was quite evident when that boxer was frequently ending up back on the ropes uh, at the start of their fight which I know enough about boxing to know that's not where you want to be um, and when, when we sort of dug into it a little bit further to see what was actually going on the parting words from the trainer as the boxer stepped into the ring was stay off the ropes and yeah. and so no surprises that that's exactly where the athlete was ending up. So then when I said to the trainer, knowing the answer, but I said to him, where would you like the athlete to be? And he said, well, in the middle. And I said, well, say that. You know, I, I've always said it's the easiest money I've ever earned because, you know, he said stay in the middle and he stayed in the middle. So, you know, yeah. we're very responsive to the things we say both to ourselves and the things we say to each other. And I think that's something that we can we can apply in sport. We can apply that in life too. So, you know, giving ourselves the positive what we're going to do is so much more helpful than saying what we want to avoid. Yeah. So you've touched on two tools there that if people could actually learn them, which is imagery was one and the other one's positive self-talk. So those, those two things, um, trying to, in our mind, picture a positive outcome and then also, uh, you know, what we say to ourselves actually matters, which is coming back to the statement you made a moment ago that, uh, you know, I, I think you've uh, identified probably through my social media that I, I'm a basketball coach. So uh, one of the athletes that I was working with myself was in a rut and, I, and we were doing shooting individuals and I said, what are you saying to yourself when you miss? And he says, come on, uh, mate, you're better than this. And I said, what do you say when you make it? He says, about bloody time. And I said, well, let's change those narratives to um, when I miss, just say next one, the next one's going in, and then change the narrative to when he makes it to say good shot, which is a reinforcement of what a good shot feels yeah. like. So, so yeah. we changed the narrative um, and the next game he scored 37 points and hit 10 three-pointers. So he was out of his rut. Yeah. But the point is, is it's all about that positive change you can make using the internal narrative. I, so I understand the power of, of that. Um, and that's a demonstration of, of obviously what you've described with the boxer as well. So uh, look, you also refer to um, Michael Jordan in the book who you said... He rejects the concept of the negative. Do you want to explain what that means, rejecting the concept of the negative? Well, I, th I think what's important, and it follows on from what we've been talking about, it, it's that, that ability to reframe what's happening in front of us, that, that you know, we, we either have successes or opportunities to learn. Is, is, is one way of conceptualising exactly that kind of phrase because what 
the the alternative is to say that we have successes and we have failures. But you know, maybe maybe rather than thinking of something as being a failure, maybe it was an opportunity to learn. Um, and and we're much more likely to embrace that concept and move forward with it. And the other thing that it does is it changes our emotional experience with it as well. That you know, your example of what you did with with that particular player is a great example. That in addition to changing, as you said, the narrative, which is incredibly important because we tell ourselves stories all the time, and just because we think it doesn't mean that it's true. Um, so you, you really worked on them with that story, and I imagine you know, without knowing the full circumstances of that athlete, but I imagine what it also did is it changed the emotional tone of what was going on, that that to say good shot is motivating. It makes you feel good, you know, and, and we know that athletes often respond positively in terms of performance when they have emotions that are making them feel good with, about themselves and, and it's helping them in terms of, um, you know, the, the way they conceptualise what's going on. Because ultimately, uh, in the book, you refer to dopamine, and that when we achieve something, dopamine's released. It's it, it's a reward, and that's why many play sport. If you're changing a narrative and you're getting a dopamine hit every time, then you probably it's it, it's probably a good experience, even if you are failing to to an extent. No, and it's actually part of the success. You know, it, it's it's sometimes. You know, I don't think that you reach the full heights of your capacity unless you have failed along the way because that's how you're actually refining what it is that you know and what it is that you do. So, you know, it's rather than thinking of failure, let's go with that term because we all kind of know what it is. So rather than seeing failure for what it is, is that's a disappointment, gee, let's kick that to the curb and pretend that didn't happen. Let's embrace it as an opportunity to get that much better. Um, and so it's actually not something to be avoided, but something to be embraced when it happens so we can build on it and then get better. Do you want to speak to the two mindsets and also to your conceptualization of, of moving the narrative from being a growth mindset to more of a performance mindset? Yeah, so, so with a fixed mindset, that's where we have, it's exactly as it's described, where we have a very set view about how things are. So if we were thinking about it in terms of academic studies, if we all cast our minds back to our school days or maybe some of us are still there, you know, and you think about your performance in and usually I find I need to give the example of maths or English and it will resonate for someone where they go, oh, no, I wasn't very good at maths. Um, I'm, you know, to, so the notion that you're not good at something might be an example of a fixed mindset. And what that means is, is that the way you think influences how you feel, which influences what you then do. So if you... If you go with a narrative of, you know, I'm not very good at maths, let's stick with that one for the moment, then it's unlikely you're going to enrol in a degree in mathematics at university. You know, it makes sense that you may not necessarily go down that path. And so what happens is when we have a fixed mindset, it tends to limit our potential. Um, and, and it certainly does. And I know this even from my teaching days at uni, I teach in sports psychology, but I also used to teach in research design and statistics, um, which no one ever seems to want to talk to me about. But, but anyway, um, but, but it's interesting. It's interesting that when I used to teach statistics and I was teaching psychology students, so psychology students would come in many without an expectation that we would even be touching a formula or an equation and couldn't quite see the connection as to why we might. And so I would get students say, and this was back in the early days when computers were also a fairly new thing in the classroom, which kind of dates me a little bit, I guess. Um, but they would say things like, oh, no, computers don't like me. I don't, I don't um, you know, and, and I'd try to, you know, 
encourage these students to think about the fact that computers actually don't have emotions and they don't hate you at all. Um, but what would happen is that you'd see those students hesitate. You'd see them pull back. You'd see them not, you know, they didn't want to touch the keyboard because they didn't want to break it, you know, that kind of notion. So when we have a fixed mindset, it really limits us. And it doesn't just limit us in terms of the things we think we're not good at. It also limits us in terms of the things that we know we're good at. So if I, if I have a belief that I am a good athlete and let's say I'm a track athlete, so I'm a good runner. Um, so one of the things that happens if I have a fixed mindset around that as well, that I am, I'm good and I'm capable and I always win, then that becomes limiting in itself because what that does is it means performance actually becomes a very anxious place. And, mm -hmm. and what you often see is there's been some good research with, with, with teenagers looking at th those who are quite capable and when you, when you put them with a fixed mindset into a position where um, they have the opportunity to do something harder, where there's a higher risk of failing, they don't want to do it. So a fixed mindset can be unhelpful when you are both successful at something and when you, you know, where we more typically see it about the things that we don't think that we're so capable of doing. Within a growth or, or what I prefer to call a performance mindset, it's really about seeing that exactly what we we're talking about before, that that there are times that we won't be, we won't achieve this success that we are striving for. And not only is that okay, but that's a necessary part of getting better. And so what a performance mindset says is I'm not quite there yet. And I love that word yet. It's one that mm -hmm. I, I often try to, I, I have teenage sons. So whenever they come at me with a, I'm not good at such and such, whatever it is, you know, I try and encourage them to add that word yet to the end of the sentence because it, it offers the potential for growth, the potential for improvement. And particularly when we're looking at people in the field of high performance, we, we know that not every day is a sunny day. So there's going to be times when it's not going to go so well and, and that we need to take that by both hands and, and really embrace it and see that as the opportunity to, to get to some of those end goals that we might have for ourselves. That whole concept of a growth mindset and a fixed mindset you referred to in the book of the use of the word can't. And uh, I know with young athletes I've worked with, I add the word yet at the end if I have a child that says, I can't do that. Yeah. I say, you can't do it yet. So that changes the whole perception of what's possible. But interestingly, you take it a step further and say that we say we can't do things quite a bit to ourselves. Um, some things are realistic. We can't do them like we can't fly. So I can't fly. So and things like that. And you say there are some real can'ts in the world, but a, a lot of the, the barriers we put up for ourselves with the word can't, it, you said to change the word and, and try and ask a question like, I won't do that. What does that mean for you when you change it from can't to I won't? And, and what's the outcome from you not doing that? So do you want to speak to a little bit of this concept of how changing some of these words and putting them in a different context and then asking a question can actually help develop your growth mindset? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it taps into that notion of the importance of the way we choose to speak to ourselves. And even in the way I've just phrased that, notice the word that I use, the way we choose to speak to ourselves like mm. it's a choice. And it is a choice. It's, it's just that often we don't pay attention to it, so we go on autopilot. And I'm always saying to people that we have so many habits in place and habits are great because they save us from having to think um, because we make so many decisions every single day. So if you've got a sequence of things that you do as part of your morning breakfast routine, that's great. You can kind of go back into autopilot a little bit and make your wheat bix and do whatever it is that you're going to do. Um, the challenge with it is, though, that you know habits are great because they save us from having to think. 
and habits can be terrible because they can save us from having to think. So we really have um, a lot to gain if we do pay a little bit of attention to those words that we say to ourselves. So the example you've given is such a great one. So if I say that I can't do something, and as you said, there are sometimes then there are genuinely some things that we cannot do. But I give the example sometimes of an athlete that once said to me, uh, I don't go to the swimming trainings in the morning with the team because I can't get up that early. Now, mm. and so at that point, and I knew the athlete well enough that I could, I could push them a little bit on it. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. I said, because have you got an alarm clock? And the athlete looked at me and said, well, yes. And then I said, you know, and so you've got swimmers and goggles. And he goes, well, yes. And I said, so it's not that you can't go swimming early in the morning. What you're saying is that you won't. And what I always say to people is, you know, it's about being honest with yourself and, and, and being able to differentiate the facts. The fact is we can't fly from the stories. I can't get up early in the morning. Now, you might not like getting up early in the morning. That's true. Um, but it's really, you know, in the instance of that athlete, it wasn't that he couldn't get up. It was that he wouldn't get up. And what I always say is just ask yourself, is that a good choice? You know, and for him, he said, well, I can swim in the afternoon, Joe's. And I, and I went, great, swim in the afternoon. Works well if you prefer to swim. In, I prefer to exercise in the morning and I don't like doing it in the afternoon as much. So, you know, I get that. But if that's his only opportunity to do that thing, then, then again, it's, it's the, is it a good choice? But I do really encourage people to think about the phrasing that they use around all of their language. I was working with a, an organisation yesterday and someone made the comment about, uh, they said, I only work three days a week. And I said, well, what if we just got rid of that word only? Because by saying I only work three days a week, it almost sounds like an apology. I said, what if it was just... I work three days a week and, mm -hmm. and you could see the person and, and because the, and the reason that the language is so important and sometimes people wonder why I get so finicky about some of these things, the reason it's so important is what you say to yourself then generates some sort of emotional feeling and emotions drive behaviour. So if, yeah. you, if you're apologising for yourself, if you're feeling bad about what it is that you do and so forth, you're less likely to make choices that you're going to feel good about. So when we use language that is helpful, and, you know, where you can, where it's positive, if that's going to resonate for you, then we know from all the research that that is, is um, a performance enhancer. Mm -hmm. So one of the uh, good things about your book is it's not just a book that's speaking to you. It actually engages you by asking you to ask questions of yourself and, you know, score yourself against certain things and and. Uh, allows you to work through the book, which I, I, I find is good because um, it, it sort of throws you in the deep end questioning and also learning at the same time. Uh, one of the things you talk about is the formation of habits. You touched on it earlier around how we do things habitually and that there are traits that high performance individuals and successful people actually have. And you were talking around, again, when we're talking about can't and won't, and you're talking about alarm clocks and things like that, that that when we want to form a new habit, let's say it is waking up in the morning to an alarm clock and some people hit the snooze button, which you also refer to in the uh, book in reference to defence, which I'll come to later, working with Defence Force, um, that there are ways we can change our habits, but you talk about this concept of goal when then as a tool. So do you want to speak to these three three words that we can um, ask ourselves 
and, and, and actually address to build a new habit? Yes. So, so habit formation, as, as you said, is, is incredibly important because we make 30 to 40,000 decisions every day or thereabouts, um, which sounds like a lot, but when you actually think about every decision that you make, um, and some of them we pay more attention to and, and less to others. So, and around 40% of what we do every day is by habit. So what we want to do is we want to, as we were saying before, you know, habits can be really helpful for us. And particularly for elite athletes, a lot of what makes them great is they do the little things right. And it's the little things that you often don't see, the public don't see. It's often not that much fun. You know, you know, I would rather lie on the couch and watch TV than maybe get on the foam roller, you know, which is why mine often has dust on it by the coffee table and those sorts of things. So what we might do is from time to time we might notice something that we want to change about ourselves, a behaviour, whatever that might be. And the biggest challenge I find is, is it, it's not so much about giving people the knowledge about what would be useful for them. So it's not about saying to people, you know, your life would be better if you did a bit more exercise and you ate better food and you went to bed earlier and you drank more water and you patted the cat and, you know, did all these kinds of things. People know, you know, people, I, I, I work with groups all the time and say, how, tell me one way that your life could be better. And we end up filling a whiteboard with all these things that everybody knows. Um, so the challenge is actually how do you get people from a good intention to actually it becoming a behaviour? Because there's, you know, typ typically there's a reason why you're not doing whatever that thing is at the moment. And what people most often tell you is they either tell you it's because they don't have enough time or they're too lazy. That's usually what people will tell you. And it, it's not actually necessarily about either of those. It's just that you haven't quite worked out how to slot this thing into your day in a way that it just becomes as habitual as, and I often use, I use some very common examples, brushing your teeth, putting on your seatbelt, wearing a hat out in the sun, you know, those sorts of things that you do that you put, putting sunglasses on when it's bright and shiny outside, you know, you typically don't have to put a lot of thought into those things because you've done them so many times. So what we find is that instead of loading ourselves up with, oh, gosh, and now I need to, let's go with using the foam roller because that's one that people often resonate with, um, rather than just going, okay, now that's an extra thing I have to add into my life, what we find is the easier you can make it for people, the more likely it is that it's going to happen. Again, another statement of the obvious. So why not take that new behaviour, whatever the new behaviour is, and let's go with the foam roller, and let's lock it in with something else that we do regularly. And because what happens is when you do that, it's kind of like you grease the wheels and you make it a lot easier for it to happen. So um, I gave the example of the foam roller in the lounge room. So let's just say your foam roller is in the lounge room. I don't know why they always seem to be in the lounge room, but they often are. And it might be that you go, okay, so the one thing I do every single day is at the end of the day I sit down and watch an hour of TV, say. And let's say I watch a commercial channel so you might say, well, the, the best way for me to tap these two things together is, and my wording here is important, when the commercials come on TV, then I'll get on the foam roller. So notice what I did there. I said when and then. And if you think about it, that's no, that's no different to what you do when you put your seatbelt on in your car. When I get in the car, then I put on the seatbelt. The last time you got into a car, you would have put a seatbelt on. And you, get, you gave it no thought at all because you didn't have to because humans work in contingencies. When this happens, when there's a trigger, then this happens. So just by the mere nature of saying, when you watch the ads on TV, then you get on your foam roller, if it's a behaviour that you want to change, it will trigger that thought in the front of your mind. Now, does it guarantee you'll do the behaviour? No. 
but it does guarantee that you will more than likely think about it. So what we find is this when-then strategy tends to increase the likelihood of behaviour change by two to three times. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a winner in terms of if the main reason you're not doing something is because it doesn't occur to you, then this is a strategy that you can use. So if, if, if I may, I'll just give you one more example, and it's a basketball one, so I think you'll like it. Um, so I had a, a basketballer, that I, a professional basketballer that I worked with several years ago, um, and he said to me, Joe, my goal for this season is that I want to increase my shooting percentage, which, you know, would be a, a good goal for a professional basketballer to have at the start of the season. And I said to him, well, how are you thinking that you're going to go about working towards that goal. And he said, well, I've decided that what I'm going to do is after practice each training session, I'm going to take an extra 100 shots before I leave. So that sounds like a great thing to do. You know, and, I, and, he, and he said, yeah, but the problem is I keep forgetting. Like I get to the end of practice and because I'm tired, I grab, get my stuff and I go home and I forget. And so I didn't give him any of this background that I've just given you about contingencies and brushing your teeth and all these sorts of things. So what I said to him is I said, Tell me what it looks like for you after practice. And he said, and this is where it's important because you need to work out what you're doing. So he said, we finish practice, I go to my locker, I grab my stuff, I get my keys out and I go to my car and go home. And so I, I, what I needed to do was I needed to find the thing that happens all the time after practice. So I said to him, okay, when your keys are in your hand, then ask yourself, have you taken your shots? So what I've actually done is now I've piggybacked taking the shots onto his car keys and so what it meant was then it became front of mind he was motivated to do it and so then he went to shooting after practice every practice because the keys initially it was the keys with the trigger and then after a while it was like putting his seatbelt on he didn't he didn't necessarily need the keys and sometimes he would even just take the shots before he went back to his locker what you're doing to create that habit is that link to a trigger that sort of triggers you into an action that otherwise you may not have you say there's no guarantees of that action but by actually saying uh, if this is the outcome i want then um when this occurs then i need to do this and the then is the change of behavior which is then habit forming absolutely and what's really important with this strategy is the language you use around it that you know we've kept saying when then when then Use that language and even say it out loud to yourself, you know, maybe in a quiet room, but, you know, say it out loud to yourself. And the reason that that's important is because some of the uh, the research in some of the cognitive activity and some of the neural activity that happens is because we work in contingencies, what will happen is if you use a when then, let's say you want to ring your sister more often or not and you think that Sunday's a good time to do it. When it's Sunday at four o'clock, then I'll ring my sister what will happen is at Sunday, four o'clock, your brain will start kind of almost tapping you on the shoulder, if you like, going, you were going to do something, you know, and that's where this research originally came from was some research, which is talked about in the book about um, that happened with students in at Christmas time about writing essays, which, you know, it's probably, it's probably just as easy that people read about that in the book. But, but what we know is that if you link the new behaviour to something that is happening regularly all the time, then, you know, you increase the likelihood of that behaviour change provided you make the connection of that link. Now, you also refer to um, the pushing of boundaries and that successful people tend to uh, push boundaries and have a creative way of thinking about things. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Now, I don't want to go through your whole book because I haven't read the whole book, but (laughs) I don't want to give it away. I want people to actually um, buy it. And there are 10 tips that you highlight, 12 chapters, but 10 
tips. So I'm throwing some of these out there that you have mm. mentioned in the book. So we'll come back to the creative, but um, creative thinking and the concept of, of pushing your own limits or boundaries and understanding that for you to create change that you need to be doing those things so with the pushing of boundaries and i'm thinking that's the chapter embrace the suck um that possibly that that's coming from um it's really about uh with that one particularly from an athletic point of view it's 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 managing that really uncomfortable moment in your sport whatever it is whether it be you know whatever it is that you're doing but particularly if we look at it in terms of physical discomfort or psychological discomfort where you're just in that place where it's hurting. And I have to be very careful in how I phrase that because I mean it's hurting as in you're uncomfortable, not you're in pain and you're about to get injured. So I'm being so please don't don't push yourself yeah. beyond the boundaries and then I don't want anyone to get an injury. But 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 athletes often know what I'm referring to there because it's that moment where it's almost like you you're at the crossroads and you'd go, Do I keep pushing? Do I keep going through this next play? Or do I signal back to coach that I want to get you know, onto the bench because I'm tired and my legs are hurting and all the rest of it. And typically what a lot of athletes will say is when they opt out and they go, yep, I'm, I'm ready for a break, like they're, they're sitting and you would know this as in your time of all your experience with all your athletes that you've worked with, they sit on the bench and then they look at you and go, okay, well, I'm ready to go back on again now. You know, it's, it's almost like they kind of go and there's almost a, that moment of regret that I, I opted out or, you know, I've, I've had that with runners who say I was running and then the next thing I knew I was walking and why was I walking? Cause I didn't want to walk and, and I wish I'd kept pushing or, you know, athletes who finished, I worked with a CrossFitter once who said, you know, I got to the end and thought I knew I had more in me. So I guess it's that moment we're talking about. Um, and so it's really about, and a lot of it is about psychological strategies because what we do know is that the human body is often capable of far more than we allow it to. So it's almost like our mind gives up uh, before our body does, that we tell ourselves we're fatigued, we tell ourselves that we're tired, we tell ourselves that we've had enough and all of that kind of language and particularly our language around how hard we're working. This is awful. This is terrible. This is the worst thing I've ever been through. You know, if it's that kind of self-talk, it actually you know, increases your fatigue and reduces your motivation and then you are more likely to back it off or stop or ask for a sub or, you know, whatever it is that you might do. So a really important skill for people to learn is, is that notion of pushing through. And, and it comes, the, the term I use in the book comes from the military and you mentioned before I, I do quite a bit of work with the military about that notion to embrace the suck. Because I guess in sport, particularly when you get to the pointy end and the higher end of it, is the whole reason it's elite is because it's tough, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when, whenever we're pushing ourselves in any physical pursuit, you know, if you hit the point where it gets tough, you know, that notion that, well, wasn't this kind of the point? This is, isn't this, you know, if I often say that to myself because I, I, I'm more a weekend warrior. I'm certainly not an elite athlete, but but as a weekend warrior, you know, if I'm getting up at silly o'clock to train, then I'm not getting up to walk and have a have a lovely time of it. I'll, I can do that at seven, you know. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to get up at four, then I, you would expect me to push myself. And when I hit that point of discomfort, I remind myself that's why I got up and that's why yeah. I keep pushing through. And and so that's how you kind of use that mental strategy to to help move you through it because it's very easy otherwise to then come away from the situation with regret. What I like about that as a concept and, and, and I've done some videos with 
um, a particular sport that had a competition on it at, at a particular point in time and people had been watching it. Anyway, a friend of mine watched it who doesn't do the sport and he came back to me and said, Joe, that video was really helpful. And I knew the athlete didn't ha- – I knew the person didn't have that athletic background. And I said, oh, tell me how you're using that. And he said, I'm using it for reading. He said, mm-hmm. I really struggle with reading. I know it's a good thing to do. I know I'll get a lot from it. But I really – I sit down. I feel tired. I don't feel like reading anymore. And then, I've, and then I, I'm annoyed with myself the next day because I didn't read. So he said, I'm using that strategy for reading. And I think that's probably what I tried to do with the book as much as anything is it certainly can be read by the athlete who wants to perform better. And, and there's plenty of athletes, I'm fortunate that plenty of athletes have, have read it from that perspective. But there's lots of other people reading it who just want to go, well, there's something about elite sport that they are working towards success or working towards bettering themselves or working towards being the best version of who they can be and what can I what can I draw out of those areas what are those elements that can help me to do that and that that notion of pushing through you know because the reality is if you know if successful athletes only did things when they felt like it they wouldn't be successful athletes so it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not so much how well you train or how well you work on the days you feel like it the real test is how do you do it on the days when you don't feel like it. So that's mm. that's the challenge, isn't it? So yeah. So you were you just use the word challenge at the end there. One of the things that I'm constantly saying to my athletes, myself, is if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. And and they 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 want to say I can't do that. You know the old narrative can't do that yet and everything like that. And and I just remind them if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. That's the change of state that you're trying to get to. If you're just comfortable. Um, which comes is going to lead into this creative thinking concept. If you're comfortable in how you do things, so the status quo, things like that, and you're not challenging yourself, you're unlikely to necessarily drive forward. You're almost falling into that fixed mindset thing, I guess, there. So, so the concept of creative thinking and, and changing the way that you do things as well to drive yourself forward and, and succeed. Um, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, so so I, th- I think creativity is a really useful concept for all of us. Um, and I often say to people, because one of the reasons, one of the things that creativity offers us is it's a, an impetus for motivation. So if you hit a phase in your life, and whether it be in sport, whether it be in business, whether it be in your relationship, whether it be in your life, and it's all feeling a bit vanilla, and, you know, vanilla is okay, but, you know, sometimes we want it to be a little bit sparkier than that. So if, it's, if you're feeling a bit flat, then it's always a sign that there's something about your motivation that's not quite where you want it to be. And one of the ways to spark your motivation is to think in creative ways. And, I, and, and what I like is that notion of the possibility. What's the possibilities that we might have? You know, what, what is possible and what's, you know, what's not possible? And, and because when we get caught up in the I can'ts, that we're actually saying things aren't possible. So how can we challenge ourselves? What if we did it differently? What, what, you know, so, you know, it's interesting, even the notion of writing the book for me as a, as a personal process is there's lots of people who are probably watching this podcast who are thinking, yeah, I could write a book one day. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. And I was one of those. And then one day I went, well, what, what if I did it now? What if I, you know, and so at that moment, that's what opened it up for me to allow me to, to kind of do that. So when we entertain the possibilities, and even if they seem like silly possibilities, you know, that we don't necessarily act on everything, but what it does is it challenges us. And I think if we look at it from a team perspective and with all your experience in basketball, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. But my experience with 
teams is particularly successful teams and if you take a team like the fire who've had a great deal of success over over recent years which has been great as a north queenslander sitting sitting watching their success you know that does not happen by accident and the other thing that's interesting with the fire is if you actually look at the personnel who've been at the fire over years we've had we're now we've now in this most recent era we're, we're about to start now with our third coach you know we've we've changed the board Players have changed. Our fabulous Susie retired at the end of last year and now has, a, has her twins keeping her busy and all the rest of it. So we've, lots of changes have happened and yet the team's managed to maintain success and, and, and to do well. And as a basketball team, they can't turn up this year and, and replicate what they did last year and expect things to be any different. It's exactly what you said. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. And, and what, for those years when we've won the premiership, Every other team is chasing your tail. So you can't turn around and do it the same way next year because everyone's going to be trying to replicate you anyway. So how could we do this differently? You know, what, what do we take? Success leaves clues. So what, what are the clues that we've learned from this last season? What do we want to take with us moving forward? And how can we do this differently? What's, what's going to be interesting? And, and, and that's important for the players too because you would have worked with enough players that if you, if you turned up at every training session and made every training session the same, you know, not only would they not get the physical benefits of that change brings, but they'd get bored, you know, and mm. bored athletes don't perform well. So creativity adds that excitement and the possibilities of what we can do. Yeah. So, and that's, you've hit the nail on the head. I I, I think every training session I do, I make sure it's different and it's got something new that even I haven't done before. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> It's a constant learning process. So I'm writing a program, so I'll just find a new drill or a new something that's relevant to what we're doing and inject that. And I think if you were to ask my athletes, they would tell you that no two training sessions have ever been the same over the course of the last three years because it's yeah. we're all constantly growing. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I understand the importance of that. And that, that too, I am creating drills and they're my guinea pigs. So I'm always creating my own content um, and drills and doing things differently, which gives me uniqueness because they're not getting it anywhere else. Um, so, so I understand completely those those um, concepts of trying to be creative, and it does break through some barriers. And you learn a lot of things, and you have a lot of failures in being creative. That's that's part of it too. Is you've got to learn from if you're just doing things the same way every time, you get to a point where you might perfect that if or mastery becomes an issue. Um, not an issue. Mastery is a good thing, but there is a point where mastery occurs and you want new things to actually change and improve you in other areas. If you've mastered an area, you go, well, what haven't I mastered now? What haven't, what do we need yeah. to work on? You're constantly looking at that in sport. Um, you touched on the defense force. I, I haven't completed the book, as you said, you didn't give me enough time. No, um, I think it have come through to the wrong email, but I, I will um, finish the book. And are there any uh, plans in the, pipeline for a second book or are you just riding the wave of this first one are you got ideas uh, of there is actually because I, i've been reflecting and thinking about what else can i add into the mix for this um so i am thinking about some of what that content might look like and how to best share that content um and the other things that i'm doing is because as the book as you know is available by ebook but i've also got the audio book coming out 
at Christmas time once I can. That'll be the next challenge for me is to lock myself into a studio to record it because apparently I'm supposed to record it myself anyway. I was hoping I could outsource that, but it seems not. Apparently that's not the way that it's typically done. And But the other thing that I'm doing as well is developing the chapters into online modules because the other thing that's really important for learning is that people learn in different ways. And a bit like my friend who said, well, I've had two friends say to me, I bought your book, Joe. I'm not reading it. I don't read books. Um, although one of them did say to me the other day that he's got to chapter three and he hasn't got to chapter three in a book in 20 years. So I thought I thought that was a good sign. But that you know, people, pe- people learn in different ways. So what I, what I'm actually in the process of doing is the chapter on embrace the suck is actually just being turned into an online module for people that might that might be a better way for them to consume some of the content. So just trying to yeah. think a bit, you know. And here I am thinking a bit creatively about how I might do it, you know, so entertaining mm-hmm. the possibilities, so trying to um, follow a little bit of my own medicine. The book is called The Elite, Thinking Like an Athlete Succeeding Like a Champion. Is that correct? I think that's that the... That is correct. And, and it's, there's, well. there's 10, 10 tips, um, core tips, core themes in, in the book, and it is a workbook as well. You, can, you don't have to do the exercises in the book, but no. it is part of it. You just read the... The, the, the questions that are asked and you don't have to put pen to paper to um, you can do it internally but I, I think it makes you think about what you've just read to and, and try and enact it in your own life so I wouldn't necessarily say it's a in the self-help new age book category it certainly is and it's definitely a book around psychology and how to improve your performance not only as an athlete as you said but also as a person trying to succeed in business or it could be a student trying to better themselves anyone who's trying to better themselves and trying to also understand limitations and the limitations we put in ourselves so is there anything you'd like to add um on the, that we haven't covered in the book because i hadn't completed the the uh the reading of it so um Often I come into these interviews uh, as naive and ignorant. I like that because then I can't sort of steer the conversation too much. Um, but is there anything in the book that you think might help people who are on that um, the negative psychology spectrum where they're trying to change their life? They might be in a rut or they might have anxiety or something like that. Is there a chapter in particular that you feel speaks to getting yourself out of the rut, particularly, say, with athletes too who retire great question and and thank you for the opportunity to reflect on that probably two chapters come to mind and they are in the back end of the book and Craig you said you didn't get through it but in in your defense so everyone knows I think I gave you 36 hours with the book so you 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 wouldn't be expected to get through it in in that time um but two of the chapters like you said when when you go through a change and whether it be an athlete coming to the end of their career I work a lot in the defense space where soldiers are transitioning out of defense and then into civilian life and so forth, you know, after after serving their country and looking after us for all of these years. When you go through any sort of change, that's challenging. And so it's not, a, a, you know, it's not unusual for us, particularly if it's a, it's a change that's imposed upon us. So say an injured athlete, you know, that maybe has their career end, but it also to the athletes who get to the end of what's been a fantastic ride and then, and then it all changes, you know. So there's a chapter in the book called In Your Corner, um, which is really about reinforcing the importance of people in our lives and 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 
you know, particularly at times when we're struggling and whether that be turning to our friends, turning to our families or even seeking professional support. So there's a, a chapter there that, that looks about what who's in your corner and particularly about the to- I, I talk about the type of support that you can gain from different people and also understanding your own needs in terms of what do you need from those who are around you and not assuming that our friends and our family are mind readers and can work that out for us, that maybe part of our responsibility in the journey is to to think about, you know, communicating what we need and communication is such a key part of that. But also thinking about our role in the corners of others. You know, how do we look after the people around us? Because when you look at the happiness literature, what we know is there's two key predictors of happiness. Um, one of them is is looking after others and caring for others. And, and then the second thing is actually one the other chapter that I was going to mention on the basis of your question, which is called the gratitude attitude. And we know that gratitude is a key predictor in happiness for people that, you know, we certainly stuff and I'm sure all the basketball, I have my son, my youngest son plays basketball and he would not say no to a new pair of boots if I offered them to him this afternoon, which I'm not going to do. Um, and, he, and he would love them and he would think they're great today and he's a very appreciative um, person. Um, and then probably after a week or two, they would just be another pair of shoes in the cupboard. So what we know is that, that the things that we buy give us a relatively short shelf life in terms of happiness. But when we are grateful for our lives, um, when we're grateful for our opportunities, when we're grateful that we get the opportunity to uh, play in sport, go to work, all those sorts of things, I talk about the difference between the phrasing of I get to versus I have to. You know, I have to go for a run this afternoon. Well, lucky you because think of all the people who are not able to do that, you know. I have to pick my kids up from school this afternoon. Well, think about all the parents who are at work who wish desperately they could do that. You know, it's not that. It's I get to pick my kids up from school. I get to go out and do some physical activity. I get to go to work. Even I get to pay taxes. You know, think of all the people who don't have an income. So, you know, I, we can be more grateful. Now, the interesting thing, and I'll, I'll just say this point quickly, but I, but I think it's a new one, particularly for those who are looking to enhance themselves, particularly at the pointy end, because I don't think we've seen as much research on this as we're going to. There's substantive research about the psychological well-being that we get from being grateful. So when we're grateful, you know, we feel happier within ourselves. It helps moderate mild to moderate depression. You know, it's an intervention. Gratitude is a, is a great way of being. It's a great mindset. What we're also now starting to see, though, is the performance-enhancing effects of gratitude. So that what it means is, and I, I was talking to a running coach about this just recently, and he tested it out. Um, when you can stand on the start line and be grateful for the opportunity to race, what it actually does is it relaxes your body and actually the, the, the linkages there are still being explored, but what it's thinking it's doing, that actually enhances performance. So it's not mm-hmm. just a feel-good factor, it's a performance enhancement. That when we are grateful, when we, you know, and, and one of the teams I worked with, um, they set up their pillars for the season. What, what are the things we're going to base our season around? What are we going to be known for? And without me influencing it, they chose gratitude. And so what that meant, and I said to them, well, what does that look like? You know, so if I'm, I'm here watching you all train and play and all the rest of it, how do I know you're being grateful? And they said, well, it's overt things like going up to the ground staff and saying, thanks for preparing our field. It's going up to our spectators at the end of the game, regardless of the outcome and saying, thank you for coming out and watching us and supporting us and wearing our jersey. And it's, it's thanking the people that run the water and it's, being thankful to the coaches that coach us. You know, I don't think athletes say thank you to their coaches enough. You know, it's all those sorts. Of, and being grateful to 
your family that support you to allow you to do what you do. So you can look at that through the sports lens, the business lens, whatever lens that it is. But I think that gratitude is one of those things that we underestimate and sometimes we just pass it off as, oh, yeah, it's just that feel-good thing. It is the feel-good thing, but it also makes us better at what we do. So I think that's the other thing that's really interesting for people to explore. That was a long long answer, wasn't it? (laughs) No, that's a good answer. It it was going to drive me forward. So really, um, as you're speaking, I'm listening to what you're saying and you talk about growth mindset, fixed mindset. You're talking about gratitude, attitude. To me, gratitude's almost a shift in mindset within itself because we are grateful for a lot, but what we tend not to do is action that, um, like by thanking people for what we actually are grateful for. So we, we're not pondering, like we are grateful for a lot if we stop and think about, and that's what we're saying is action it. Action it. Mm-hmm. Instead of knowing, like internally we just accept everything as norm, but for some people that isn't their norm. And everyone has a different norm, but the truth is we all have things that we can be grateful for and taking pause to actually not only say it internally and say, I'm really grateful for that, but acknowledging it, it's the actioning of it that, that gives you the response that is obviously a chemical response, which gives you a different outcome, which, which is what you're saying is performance enhancing. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And it's, 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 an, it's a no-brainer really because what it is is, as you said, if I'm aware of the things that I'm grateful for, and then I express to you and say, Craig, thank you for the interview today. I really appreciated the opportunity. You get the little buzz from me thanking you and acknowledging you. I feel good for having done it. So, you know, we both win with that. And, and it's sincere. I mean, that's the other thing is it needs to be sincere. But the other, th- the other thing with gratitude and what we're seeing in the new research now is the importance of savouring the moments as well. So when you stand on that start line or you put the singlet on and you're just about to run out for the first time playing for the little rep team that you're playing for or your own team or you're on the bench or you're not on the bench or whatever it is that you're doing, you have that moment where you go, this is pretty cool, you know, mm-hmm. then then that's that's there's much to be gained from that as well and it's that gratitude. And the other thing that that does is it reduces your anxiety. So, you know. So that's you know, being in the now. That's the concept absolutely. Of- not focusing on what was happening five minutes and what could happen five minutes from now or whatever. Um, it's literally just saying, this is where I'm at right now and accepting yeah. and, and just going, this is pretty cool. And, it, uh, you know, like you say, um, I think in the book you refer to the uh, Kathy Freeman's one of the people you refer to, but runners on a starting block and things like that and what was going through her mind at the time that she was um, – in front of the world and and what her mental focus was at the time and how she perceived it and and i think a little bit that's of that's touched on there too is that she was in the moment i think it was clear she was in the moment um when she you know hit the starting block there Mm. yeah absolutely and 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 that ability to recognize that as humans we're time travelers you know our bodies aren't but our minds are we can we can go back to this morning we can go to this afternoon and we can be in the moment and the challenge for the athlete as it is for everyone is to match the moment to what's required so if you're walking around the house can't find your sunglasses because they're sitting on top of your head you know at some point in time you know you lost that you know we do we, we do it all the time don't we or you drive through a set of traffic lights and think oops i wonder what color they were you know we've we've really got it to maximize our performance match the time with the moment. Yeah, I, I've had the experience and the anxiety of w- wondering where my phone is while it's in my hand. 
It's like, where's my phone? I feel my keys. I'm touching my pocket, but I can't feel my phone in my pocket. <laughs> Where is it? And here I am patting myself down and the bloody thing's attached to my hand like it's super glued. But um, look, uh, thanks for, uh, we'll finish up there unless you want to join, uh, unless you want to add anything. I think no, that there's covered right. a lot there. So I'll put the links to your book in the description below where they can um, source the book and uh, uh, to also where you have social medias and things where people can go and find out more about you. Uh, I do appreciate you. your time and your work and I appreciate that you've written this book to help others improve their lives and, and hopefully achieve a degree of success like an athlete. So Dr. Joe Lukens, appreciate it and thanks for joining some people with a passion. Thank you, Craig. Thank, thank you for having me. And, and I'll pass on to you as well. We'll put into the comments. I, I can put a little discount code in there so people can forget about the shipping. So we'll, uh, we'll put that in for your listeners as well as a, as a token of appreciation to them. So thank you for, t for having me on today. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to watch this video. If you enjoyed what you saw, please give it a thumbs up. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you smash that subscribe button and also hit the bell button to get notified when new interviews are uploaded. Once again, thanks for joining us and hopefully we'll see you again sometime. Catch you later.